0: I miss all the definition of experiences all around Enough to make me wonder If you're holy, does it mean If you're holy, does it mean We can't drown knowledge see the oneness within there you will find the clear mirror already waiting having come from the midwest we do this thing called sledding Not sure if any of you Californians have heard of it. Generally, there were two major places nearby that were the best for sledding. Sunset Knoll was good for newbies who wanted that true experience. The hill was pretty large, but it wasn't unbearable in terms of how far you had to walk up. The second, more extreme place was Mount Trashmore. Now, Matt Trashmore was originally Illinois' only tubing and skiing hill, and yes, it was absolutely pathetic in comparison to the skiing, you can do pretty much anywhere else. But that moment after all of the time you spend walking up the hill... You're sitting on your sled and you're teetering on the edge before your momentum takes you forward is a feeling hard to replicate elsewhere. Now, of course, trying to use any metaphor to compare to the transfiguration of Jesus is, to put it politely, a pathetic attempt. But we could try to consider this for a moment. That this whole process considers the entire walk up, the entire ride down, as well as that moment in between. The moment of turning around and surveying what is to come, whether from a hilltop or Jesus' mountaintop, it constitutes a form of catalyst. Now, there is much to be considered when we find ourselves rediscovering the story of Transfiguration. And I will offer you no absolutes. I will offer you merrily invitations into a story that cannot be contained. If there were any a story in the biblical text That I would consider queer, which, if we remember, the term itself cannot be defined, that is the entire point of itself, I would probably pick this transfiguration. Jesus' ministry up until this point has been a continued revealing, an epiphany of his identity in the world, perhaps likened to walking up that hill. The story of this mountaintop experience turns and surveys what is to come and issues yet another revealing of God's work in the world. From here, this momentum carries us through Lent towards Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And I don't believe that the transfigured Jesus is necessarily something supposed to be figured out. There's something about surrendering to the mystery that is healthy and alive, and what Jesus draws us into. I can't say with complete clarity what happens, how the story came came to be, time and space collapse, Jesus is present, he glows, he's with Moses and Elijah, some stuff goes down, and ultimately, as always, we must pause. May we focus our questions on something more in depth than just what happened. But instead, what does it reveal about the person of Jesus? What does it reveal about the meaning of his calling? What does it affirm or change about our understanding of the complexity of our faith? So rather than my usual jumbled self, I've settled this week just to take us step by step, verse by verse in the short passage to attempt to give a bit of context, um, some forms of interpretation that have been brought before myself um, and go from there. And of course, as always, treat my words as a starting point. I often attempt to leave specific room for the conversation to grow on Sunday so that we may find forms of truth in our collective wisdom rather than attempt to cover everything in a single podcast. But if you hear nothing else from the rest of the sermon, my invitation is to understand the transfiguration as both another revelation and epiphany of who Jesus is, whether we understand the fullness of it or not, and that it marks a shift in the intention and energy as we move towards Jesus' journey towards Good Friday. This moment in which we come into the Transfiguration is considered a beautiful point of where human meets God and perhaps the most intimate of meetings, a meeting place for the temporal and the eternal to intersect with Jesus being some point of connection. And as we kind of break into these verses, um, I, I want to go back a little bit to something I mentioned earlier That this transfiguration defies our need to know. Um, It defies our ability to know something. It is this moment that is mystical and spiritual and theological, and we'll explore some of those things, but is a departure from some of the more um, straightforward or physical um, narratives that we receive in other parts of the text, especially as we work through Mark. It takes us on this wild ride and more or less puts us into a transformed reality and a definitively queer reality. This identity, which was once presumed to be defined and fixed, suddenly becomes fluid and unstable. Jesus, the human, the rabbi, the beloved, is transfigured and becomes something greater, something that we can't put words to and we can't put a definition on. So we enter this story as Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and brings them to the top of a very high mountain where they were alone. He was transformed in front of them. In this final week of Epiphany, we can reflect on all of the ways in which we have explored Revelation, that we have explored moments in which something is truly And meaningfully revealed and there's something even being revealed in this contextual setup to say after six days Jesus takes them on this high mountain that he was transformed in front of them and the transfiguration comes up every year in the lectionary um, from different Gospels and with slightly different variations But there are some theologically, or at least um, narrative-based pieces of the text that are reflecting something that has come before it. Whether that is Moses' mountaintop experience, where God delivers the Ten Commandments, um, the six days later signaling a reference to Moses' six days that he spends on Mount Sinai before God calls out to him, And another way of saying after six days is on the seventh day. And so the imagery that we receive about something that happens on the seventh day affirms Jesus's beloved status is very good and that the work he would turn to as he continues his journey would be beloved. On this Mount of Transfiguration, which... The mountain itself is probably more significant theologically than geographically. Um, There are all of these pieces that are pointing to something great about to happen. And we don't know how to quite explore or explain the metamorphosis that Jesus experiences. Um, It talks about change and transformation but in reality is also just a revealing of what has already been there. It is this moment where the limitations of human soul and body are broken through, Um, that the disciples that accompany him in this vision or this journey um, have been seeing and now see something that has already been there, the glory that Jesus had always possessed but had been veiled until this moment. There is a difference between um, something just being revealed and something completely transforming. But in some ways, Jesus queers that as well, um, that he does both of those things at the same time. And of course, the response um, that Elijah and Moses appear and are present and talking to Jesus, and then Peter's reaction to it all um. In both of these things, we can acknowledge that Jesus was not alone in either of these ways. Um, In Luke, it talks about, um, and it states that Elijah and Moses and Jesus were talking and they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And Mark doesn't give any context for the conversation, which I almost appreciate more. It seems that something so sacred took place that perhaps no words needed to be spoken to indicate the magnitude of a moment in this. And Peter's offer to make the three tents perhaps mirror our own desperation to offer something in moments of great awe or sorrow. Rather than existing merrily as presence, he struggles to try and find the right action after Epiphany, which is, I think, something that we all struggle with in one way or another. And the reference to tents connects this event with the Jewish festival of Booths in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. But of course, Mark has a certain way of admonishing the disciples, especially Peter. And in this moment, states that Peter said this because he didn't know how to respond, for the three of them were terrified. And my understanding here is that Mark would almost more appreciate silence and no response than trying to fill the gap with a statement or an action that, can only really go so far and cannot fully acknowledge um, the depth of what is happening. Sometimes in our lives we see this when someone tries to say a statement after you've lost someone or are going through a hard time of, well, at least this isn't happening or this isn't your reality or God gained another angel and let go and let God God can't give you or won't give you anything you can't handle. And it's almost better just to sit there in the silence and acknowledge the magnitude, um, than attempt to, out of our humanity, respond to something that we just can't respond to in its fullness. And in terms of the context of this all, It's actually quite interesting that Peter returns to um, maybe this insecurity or inability to find the right words, because previous to this passage, uh, Peter has just called Jesus and revealed Jesus as the Messiah. Messiah, um, based on, out of Hebrew, and it's equivalent in the Greek text to say Christ, meaning anointed one. Um, and Jesus, in terms of messiahship, would indicate an acknowledgement of both suffering and of love. And in Mark, this uh, language around the son of human, son of man, and the suffering servant are themes that continually come up to define the son of God. And the words that are affirmed in this text um, and affirm Jesus' identity in this way come next, of this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And it is almost this little bit of snarky rebuke of Peter's placement um, on the same level as Moses and Elijah when he's saying, let's put up three shelters, one for each of you, Um as well as a divine confirmation of Jesus' identity, which Peter himself had offered when he called Jesus Messiah. Um, these words, the last time that we heard them, was at Jesus's baptism. And that event was a manifestation of Jesus' identity as God's Son and as Beloved. And this is another marker along the way, that signals another shift in Jesus' ministry. In this way, the mountaintop encounter um, is kind of put in terms of a classic paradigm, this moment of revelation. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then suddenly everything begins to retreat. All the disciples see are Jesus. And then Jesus, they go down the mountain. He orders them not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the human one had risen from the dead. And as we've talked about a little bit in the past about the messianic secret, um, This is another moment of that and also would be very confusing uh, to receive for the disciples that the human one could, would, should rise from the dead. But as we go back to the image of the sled, that moment of precipice before coming down the hill um, pushing forward with a certain kind of momentum Jesus and his journey had to continue in a way that wouldn't be disturbed by an extreme uh, kind of public revealing of his identity Um, based on the timing of his role and the expectations Um, in this first century place, the disciples both would have misunderstood um, Jesus and his words and what he was going towards. And second, um, Jesus still had much to do and to say uh, to prepare for what was lying ahead. And it would not do to kind of rush that process. In the moment before something begins, is a sacred and holy moment. It requires a summoning of momentum, and there's a decision that is made and reflected in the action. This story of transfiguration is located almost exactly at the midpoint of Mark, and in that I think it's such a beautiful reflection of that moment of precipice that Jesus had been teaching and healing and working um, in a specific way, yes, still along that journey of walking up the hill with the eventual intent of coming back down, Um, but this shift and this epiphany here marks a bridge between Jesus' public ministry and his passion. From the time here moving forward, we begin to see Um, marks of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. So Jesus has shown forth in so many ways and in so many aspects of his identity. Here, decisively, he is God's beloved child. His path of love and of suffering continues And this moment of transfiguration just affirms the continuation. And probably the two things that I find most beautiful about this journey is that Jesus is surrounded by community, um, whether that is in this moment on the mountaintop or uh, his journey to get to even this point, and he will continue to. And so as we approach um, Lent and as we approach the end of, of that period and moving forward, look for the ways that Jesus is surrounded by community. This vision of the transfiguration is that we see and reveal the life with God, that it is mysterious, that It can be beautiful and glorious and painful that we fairly often don't have quite the response um, for the revealing in our lives. There's something uncomfortable about the mystery. But at the same time, we're grounded in a sense of those coming before us as Two particular prophets uh, return to be with Jesus on this mountaintop. And that the story continues to unfold. We leave our comfort and safety of the known and find it's uh, in and of itself greater things in the unknown. And when we cling too tightly to putting a definition on things... Uh, we risk holding on to something that can be more like an idol, uh, the idol of concreteness. And we more or less refuse ourselves an understanding of the mystery and this transformation, whether that's on a mountaintop or with a friend at the beach or anywhere else in between. There are so many places in which God's belovedness, um, whether it is revealed in the person of Jesus or in the person of ourselves, there are moments where Jesus reveals who he is and moments where he reveals who he isn't. In Jesus' baptism, we got a little bit of who he is. To preface, somewhere we'll go in approximately 43 days. I see Palm Sunday more as a time when Jesus takes a moment to reveal who he isn't. And maybe during the transfiguration, we get a little bit of both. So hopefully, with a little bit more context, um, a little bit of drawing into the mystery, we will find ourselves in a place that we can just settle there. That there is no pressure to say exactly what something is or isn't, um, but instead we get to sit in something that is queer for all intents and purposes. And I am happy to talk a little bit more about queer theology in that way on Sunday, um, and I know and I recognize that the use of that term is still can hold a lot of pain for some people. Um, and so I use it in a way that I hope expresses the love and the bounds and the magnitude of who God is and who we are. Um, that it is something so great and so unable to be defined, um, that it actually opens us up to something good and bright. So, in all of those things, that is what I hope to expand upon, and I'm looking forward to the conversation, um, particularly if there are any claims that you've heard about the transfiguration that defer, or are focused on figuring out exactly what happens um, in this moment. But all I hope to leave you with are little tidbits that might... Um, spark some imagination or some new thoughts that reveal something about the person of Jesus and how we might extend that to ourselves. Amen.